John here, and we've got a new sponsor, DistroKid. Now that you've finished your latest Pirate Math SpongeCore Twitch trek, it's time to get it out there so everyone can hear it. DistroKid helps musicians get their music on all the major streaming platforms, and artists keep 100% of their royalties. And because you're a high-gain listener, you get 30% off. Just go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash high-gain. That's distrokid.com slash VIP slash high-gain. And now DistroKid has an app. The DistroKid app is available for iOS and Android. You can download it at distrokid.com slash app or in the app and play stores. We'd like to take a minute to thank our pals over at Isotope, makers of software and plugins for audio repair, mixing, and mastering. The new gold standard of audio repair, Isotope RX11, is coming in May. Buy RX10 now on sale and get RX11 absolutely free when it's released. We use Isotope products here at the High Gain. It's an important part of how we've been able to bottle pure podcast gold week after week. High Gain listeners get 10% off using the promo code FRET10. That's F-R-E-T-1-0. That's all at isotope.com. I-Z-O-T-O-P-E dot com. Hey, this is Ed Peterson. And this is John Kiltica, Ed. John, we're in beautiful West Seattle today. We are. Yeah. What are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about guitars. Yeah. Sitars. Ooh, not a guitar. Not not a guitar. Yeah. Yeah. It's got strings and it does stuff. <laughs> we got beverages. Love it. We've got a guest. I hear polite chuckling in the background. Yeah. Yes. Today we're going to talk about the electric sitar, Ed, and we needed somebody who can guide us through that journey. Okay. We are pleased to welcome Nels Klein, guitar player extraordinaire. Nels, are you there? Greetings, gentlemen. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Thank you. I could tell you are impressed with that (laughs) awkward intro. See, we said we'd figure out a clever way to bring you in. (laughs) Not very clever. Not really. I think it did the trick, though. The proof is in the pudding, as we say. So that guitar, it's got six strings like a normal guitar, but then it has more. Beverages. Yes, that's right, Ed. <laughs> Is that the beverage song? <laughs> that's today's beverage song. <laughs> it changes every day, yeah. Electric sitar beverage song. Yeah. Uh, Nels, do you have a beverage? I have one. I've already started it, if that's within acceptable parameters for you guys. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a beer. Oh, lovely. Yeah, it's Sunday afternoon, and why not, you know? It's afternoon. It's afternoon here, yeah. And it's a single-cut 18-watt IPA. Oh, like a guitar single beer. Cut. Single cut of Queens, New York. What's the name of it? 18-watt. I don't know the origin of this 18-watt term. It's a very pretty can with a nice big artistic rendering of a hop, I guess, bud. 
And it's a hazy IPA affair, I guess I'd have to say, but definitely not juicy. I don't really go for the juicy. Is it super hoppy? Yeah, it's pretty hoppy. It has a nice bitterness that seems to be a disappearing quality in the extreme proliferation of IPAs in the United States of America and Canada. It does seem to be the most popular kind of variety, doesn't it? People like it. I don't know. I'm from the West Coast. I'm from Los Angeles. And I'm still kind of a West Coast IPA kind of guy as they've been, I guess, pigeonholed which is usually a little bit more robust in the hoppy bitterness department. I think they grow lots of hops in Washington, Oregon, and California. We have some growing in our backyard right now. You do? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we have a vine, and it's literally big buds of hops. They're beautiful, aren't they? Wilco once played on a massive hops farm in Idaho. It had previously been a Budweiser-owned farm. Oh, no kidding. Which is kind of staggering to me to think that Budweiser actually is made with hops, but that's just me being a snob. (laughs) It was a Goose Island hops farm, and we played kind of a private benefit thing for about 200 some people. And I was thrilled to be walking among acres of, I don't know, about 15 foot high, maybe, about to be harvested hops. It was very exciting. That smell must have just permeated everything. It was pretty great. It's great to pull one apart and kind of look at what's really going on there and then ponder how this even became an ingredient. Yeah. Just like so many odd things in the world of culinary and liquid delights. People will figure out how to make stuff to get you altered, you know? (laughs) Well, that's true. Hey, everybody, let's fry up some caterpillars. Right, exactly. Or let's take that thistle and figure out how to eat something inside it and call it an artichoke. (laughs) Yeah, the most dangerous looking plant you could possibly put in your mouth. It's a little off-putting, yeah. I got some coffee from our friends at Uptown Espresso. Mm. And I got a little bottle of apple juice in a glass bottle that looks like an apple. It doesn't look like it has any kind of label on it. Nope. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Martinelli's. Yeah. 100% apple juice. Classic. That's a classic beverage of kindergarten graduation. (laughs) Sure. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I have some raspberry cranberry juice. Mm. I also have a coffee that you got for me, a soy latte. Yeah. You Seattle guys and your coffees. What do you know about this thing, Nels, the electric sitar? Well, I own one. Oh. Yeah, mine is very odd and does not have the artificial resonator strings that don't resonate like the Coral Electric Sitar and the superb Jerry Jones reissue. But since I was born in 1956, with the rise of the sitar in popular music, aka rock and roll, at age 10, I became obsessed with sitar music having heard Ravi Shankar World Pacific live recording in elementary school. Wow. When my teacher, Miss Godwin, who looked very much like John Lennon, (laughs) played for the class an entire side of this record. Wow. It changed my life. It sounds like a hyperbolic cliche, but it really did. What was your impression? How did that hit you at that age? I was enchanted. I was so amazed It was so serious and at the same time so absorbing 
And the class was making all kinds of noises through it, like, ew. <laughs> and I was absolutely transported. This was in 1966. Ravi Shankar had an Indian classical music school in Los Angeles then. And I really thought about taking up sitar instead of guitar. I was pondering playing guitar around this time and listening to the birds and the Rolling Stones and that sort of thing. But I was so fascinated and obsessed with sitar I've tried to build for my arts and crafts project, and I am not handy, by the way, a model sitar out of wood. Whoa. And basically, it was just a piece of wood with wood dowels as fake tuners, and I painted gold paint on it with some florette-type designs, and the strings were just gold paint. It didn't have any real strings on it. Was it life-size? It was attempting to be life-size, yeah. <laughs> so then I started hearing sitar, and songs like Norwegian Wood, obviously. Right. And then Coral invented this electric sitar, which I guess is probably best known on the Steely Dan song, Do It Again, the long electric sitar solo. Right. Other than that, I think it was generally used for little background flavors. Well, it was designed by a guy named Vincent Edward Gambella. What's he up to? <sighs> we lost Vinny, also known as Vinny Bell. Vinnie Bell. Wow. Vinnie Bell was a session cat. I've heard of this name, Vinnie Bell. Yeah. He was on everything. Mm. At points, he would play five sessions a day. He was on Bob Dylan's Desire record. Oh, are we talking about an East Coast gentleman? We are. We're not talking about a Hollywood guy, right? No, no, he's East Coast, New York. Right. He died in Tenafly, New Jersey, there in Bergen County. Wow. I like to mention New Jersey because that's my homeland, and I get to watch Ed roll his eyes when I do it. New Jersey gets a bad rap. I also have to point out that my colleague, collaborator, and friend, and monster drummer, Scott Amendola, is from Tenafly. He's really good. So did Vinny Bell then collaborate with somebody at this weird company called Coral, or did he build his own first? The Coral thing is strange. In 1966, Dan Electro sold itself to MCA Records. And they're from New Jersey, too, Dan Electro. Yeah. Mm. And they had, as a kind of sister label of Decca Records, Coral. Mm. But it had become disused. Once MCA bought Dan Electro, they thought old Vinnie Bell and Nat Daniel over there at the Dan Electro subsidiary are inventing stuff. Let's revive the Coral name. That's where it comes from. Amazing. Jimi Hendrix loved it. And Vinny said, I will get you one made left-handed. And he did. This is why I know the name Vinny Bell. I don't know why I was researching anything about Dan Electro or electric sitar, <laughs> but his name came up. And I love Dan Electro guitars, and I love Jerry Jones' fancier, more refined versions that came out of Nashville until a few years ago. And that is what this is. Ah, This is a Jerry Jones master electric sitar. He really made great ones. kind of nice do you know the mechanics of how they get that sound it's the bridge what is happening it's got essentially two bridges mm -hmm. okay one bridge at the back the strings go over yeah there's another kind of artificial bridge in front of it that sits just under the strings and as soon as the strings vibrate they're going to hit that essentially buzzing yeah yeah
I think the only time I ever saw anyone play one extensively was a guitarist who went by the name of Bala Krishna, and Bala Krishna played with Miles Davis around the time of Miles Davis in concert. My brother Alex and I saw that band. So you were pretty young. 16. Yeah. That's when I first heard Coltrane's Africa, and my life completely took another direction. The jazz side of things seems to be a through line in your career, specifically, seemingly, Blue Note. Is that where you gravitate? Oh, so many other things. But yeah, oddly, Blue Note put out my last three records, which I find staggering and somewhat hard to believe. (laughs) As a Coltrane devotee, Impulse Records is very important. But all these labels, they're just labels. I don't know. My brother and I listened to everything. And I worked in a record store for 10 years from 76 to 86. I'm a record nerd, big time. (laughs) At that age, what were you taking away from the improvisational stuff you were hearing? Was it the kind of texture of it? Was it the Mm. repetition of things? What was it that was appealing to you? I can only generally answer that question by saying it's just a love of sound. Right. My brother and I were drawn without much forethought to extended instrumental forays in general. So this meant that we were really into some of the Frank Zappa records. Around that time, my brother was extremely interested in Zappa and Captain Beefheart and Magic Band. I was really interested in the Allman Brothers Band, certainly Jimi Hendrix, because Jimmy's why I picked up guitar for life. It was all kind of happening at that point, you know? Extended instrumental forays weren't always particularly enthralling, you know, but they were everywhere. And when they were enthralling, They were the best, for me anyway. So hearing Africa by John Coltrane was kind of devastating because I related to it right away and it didn't sound like anything that I thought jazz was supposed to be. didn't have a swing groove and it didn't sound like my dad's swing era records or his Ella Fitzgerald records or anything like that. It was a completely different feeling and it spoke to my love of Indian classical music because it was modal. Right. So I think it has to do with sound, and it also has to do with mood, and it has to do with the idea of freedom, let's say maybe a high degree of freedom. Absolutely. So where does Jerry Jones come in with this, John? We've jumped from Dan Electro, Coral. Right. Eventually, Dan Electro goes away. Yeah. And Jerry Jones in the 80s was making regular guitars. He was a very skilled guitar maker. He was enamored with all the Dan Electro style things. And so he starts making them for people, but he's using premium materials like a a maple neck instead of just crap wood. Right. People think very highly of them. Little side note on that. In the meantime, the rights to the name Dan Electro had been bought by this corporation called Evitz, and they tried to sue Jerry Jones. And they lost. The court ruled that these shapes are basically in the public domain, so get lost. They didn't know also that, as far as I understand it, Jerry Jones' wife is a lawyer. (laughs) Oh, oh. In the meantime, while everything was being adjudicated or whatever the right word is, he created the Neptune line, which I'm a very big fan of, and changed the shape. Yeah. But everything else remained the same. I have so many Jerry Jones guitars, and I can thank my friend G.E. Stinson, great guitar player living in Los Angeles, 
for turning me on to them many moons ago. And I'm really happy to hear this history. This sounds like a great place to Walk let it. everybody know what it sounds like. It's got two lipstick pickups on the guitar string side, yep. and then one lipstick pickup on the sympathetic string side. Each of these three pickups has their own tone and volume. So if I go to the neck pickup and roll back that tone... Because there's no pickup selector. Right. So that's just neck. That's just the neck, and then yep. I can roll the tone up on it. I can introduce that bridge pickup as well. I think the sitar tone is more pronounced if you roll the treble knob up. Sure. And the sympathetic strings have their own pickup, which I think is kind of nice. So if you want that there, or you can turn it down if you don't want that to affect what you're playing on the main course. Yeah. I have to say that this man I mentioned, Balakrishna, he tuned the sympathetic strings in a chromatic scale, and he got a lot of mileage out of just going up and down that with a wah-wah pedal. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh. I've been messing around with the whammy pedal with the sympathetic strings. like. So that's basically it. Now I've got all the pickups turned on. You could play regular stuff. It sounds so good. This particular instrument is 2004. By 2011, Mr. Jones had retired and sold off all the stuff in the factory. Yep. One would call Jerry Jones Guitars, and I did to order guitars. He would just answer the phone. Hello? <laughs> <laughs> oh, excuse me. Is this Jerry Jones Guitars? This is Jerry. And you just talk to him. He did some custom black and red burst finishes for me. So what's the finish on that electric sitar? Is it gator? It has the crackle finish, but it's white. My electric sitar is not a Jerry Jones, and I kind of wish I had one now, but I bought this really funny little homemade electric sitar when I was still living in Los Angeles. I bought it from True Tone Music in Santa Monica, and it's a Tysco body with a silver tone neck. Crazy. Somebody kind of lovingly matched the two and created that sort of black sparkle on both the neck and the body. I would say half scale. It's not even three-quarter scale. It's so small. It only has one lipstick case pickup. It sounds fantastic, and I got it with an amp in case for about 450 bucks or something like that. At that time, I just was not willing to shell out for a Jerry Jones electric sitar, thinking that I might not play it a lot. Right. Once I joined Wilco, that rationale never <laughs> kept me from buying a guitar. <laughs> so I had this thing, and I had sent a few guitars ahead when I finally started playing with Wilco, and I joined in 2004 thinking that maybe at some point electric sitar would be useful in the recording process with Wilco, which was completely untrue. You never played it? Not with Wilco, no. Wow. It's here now in New York. Actually, should probably snap a photo of it for you guys and send it to you later. Yes. But I got asked to play with my good friend and amazing drummer percussionist, Danny Frankel, on a record he was doing, along with the amazing Larry Goldings, and he really wanted most of the record to be on electric sitar. I had to tell Danny that my electric sitar was in Chicago, and I didn't know what to do. And he said, I'll find one for you and rent it. So I think he went to SIR and rented a Jerry Jones master sitar that was white gator, like the one you're holding right now. Oh. Unfortunately, it wasn't set up properly, so it didn't really have the qualities that we were hearing from the one you're playing. It was a real clunker. 
I didn't know how to fix the action or the setup, so I just played the clunker, and that's what you hear on that record, and I wish it had been as well set up as the one you're playing. And this thing's in really great shape. I noticed that it takes effects in an interesting way. Bro, synth pedal on there. It's kind of fun. Wow. Yeah. I've got this pedal you might like. Now it's called the Phantom Operator. It's a company here in Seattle called Recovery Effects. Oh. It's like a random resonator, which used to be sort of a modular synthesizer. (laughs) All this pedal talk, Nick Reinhardt was on the show. Oh, oh, he's so great. Yeah. As you look through your discography, Mm -hmm. there's clearly this passion for jazz, but then there's Wilco, and then there's Big Walnuts Yonder, which is like, that ain't that. That came out of my many years of listening to and then playing with Mike Watt. Right. Certainly the Minutemen signaled a huge change in my life. Yes. Where I re-embraced rock and roll to a rather more, I guess, dedicated extent. But I didn't know Nick. It was Watt that put that thing together. And we did it in Brooklyn at Tony Maimoni's studio. Tony from Perubu, great guy. And Nick was this guy who I didn't know who Watt had met. So Watt said, play with the man. Want to know the man? Play with the man. So we made this record. And when I watched Nick play the first time in the studio, I could not believe my eyes because your ears are already entertained. But then you realize that he's basically doing this kind of dance on his pedal board. Yeah. And originally the record was an instrumental record. Nick decided he wanted to put vocals on it. And so it took about another year before that happened. And then Greg could mix it. But I did a little, I guess, investigative research and watched some Terramelos gigs on YouTube and saw what he was doing while he was singing yeah. with his feet. And I realized like, whoa, this pedal thing has gone to a whole other level with a younger generation of players. He's a master. And he's fearless. Yeah. The granular delay effects he does that seem to add so much chaos, mm-hmm. but he controls it. He does amazing things with stutter pedals and whatnot too. Right. He just knows what to do. Where I was going with that was the adaptability of your play style to be able to play jazz and then play something way more stripped down for Wilco and then play something in this weirdo post-rock experimental kind of thing. (laughs) Well, that's my life, basically. (laughs) I'm a real jazz player, by the way. I'm a fake jazz player, but I love trying to play jazz. And I did study music theory. I never studied guitar. I tried. I tried to have a guitar teacher in high school who never showed me even the notes on the guitars. I never learned technique. I only had psychological torment as a result of that experiment. (laughs) Seriously, it was bad. And then he left town sparing me further damage. I can't even imagine if there had been more damage. And I think he moved to Seattle, by the way. Classic. Was his name Ted Bundy? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Your project Lovers Mm. that you have described as kind of like setting up the mood lighting and the cocktail shakers and copping a couple smokes on the shag rug. Well, it's the dark version of that. The original idea of Lovers was that it would address, I guess, more shadowy or edgy aspects of intimacy and romanticism. It ended up being, years later, a lighter record. I shouldn't say that it's dark because it only has a few dark parts. 
the Jimmy Jufri piece, Cry Want, or the Annette Peacock pieces, or the theme from The Night Porter. Those are part of the original idea, and certainly Beautiful Love and Secret Love, those are not dark. Thanks to my friend Michael Leonard and his amazing arranging conducting chops, we put it all together, and I sound almost convincing, I guess, as a jazz player on that record. I think it's pretty convincing. <laughs> I wish it was better from the jazz guitar standpoint, but I'd stand by the results of the project, the feeling that I get was what I was going for. There's a certain almost classical jazz phrasing that's about backing off to take a breath and then launching back into the line. And I notice that that goes all the way through the more abstract work you do clear into Wilco, like Impossible Germany. Everybody knows that one. Mm -hmm. It has those moments where it feels like you're taking a breath. Wow, I'm happy to hear this. I don't know. I've listened to so much music and I'm so influenced by so many people at this point, but there are certain people that stand out. And I don't know if I got what you're describing from Dwayne Allman or if I got it from Jim Hall or if I got it from George Benson. Yeah. I never really studied it enough. It's a combination of being mesmerized and awestruck and also terrified of trying to get close to that and finding out that it's just not possible for me, which is like so many things in life, I guess. <laughs> but the general philosophy of it, I think, serves you well, the idea of knowing when not to play. I hear it in so much of your Wilco stuff. I think a lot of that comes from being directed by Mr. Tweedy and Wilco, because he doesn't want to hear a bunch of prolific finger-wiggling in his music. He's sort of gentle but firm about trying to rein in my <laughs> tendency because I have billions of notes buzzing in my head most of the time. <laughs> this is why Indian classical music, I think, was so transporting. It's that combination of the alap introductory sections where everything's very slow and then the incredible ramping up of the tempo and the amazing facility that one is exposed to in the service of, I guess you could call it devotional music. This kind of playing is not really appropriate on a Jeff Tweedy song. <laughs> so he's good at trying to direct me to slow the hell down and play something meaningful and maybe simple in the best way. So the new album, mm. Cruel Country, y'all recorded that effectively live in the room, right? Just about all of it, yeah. In talking to a lot of artists who are putting music out like right now, no end of them talk about being locked in a closet, recording it by themselves and then sending, you know, some guitar track off to the other band members. Mm -hmm. You recorded at the end of COVID, I would guess. Hey, man, COVID's not over. <laughs> yes. You're all vaxxed up and you can be in a room again, right? Exactly. Well, there's a whole bunch of other material. There aren't just these 21 songs. Jeff's got tons of songs. And some of them are recorded that didn't fit conceptually. Hmm. This record was not preconceived as what it is. It started to form itself, I think, over time. So there are some songs recorded that were done the way you're describing, pandemic style. Yeah. Or remotely, or as we say. But yes, Cruel Country was the antithesis of this. And I would say a joyful attempt to play together in the same room on every song. Yeah. What you hear on Cruel Country is really Jeff singing live, 
playing live, all of us being in the same space. And then there's just little enhancements that we can do. Like if you didn't love the little solo tidbit, you can replay it. There's not too much leakage. There are other things that, believe me, I wish I had done differently but couldn't fix because my lap steel was leaking into a microphone or something, you know. The only person behind any glass is Glenn, our drummer. And that's not even sealed. So that's, in a way, a celebration of what it is to be in a band and play. <laughs> you know, it's fun. Yeah, I think that comes out. I don't think there was any intention of making a double album. <laughs> we had so many songs done. We were basically doing a song a day and not songs that we had played before. There were songs that we had heard Jeff demo as solo pieces. And then we would sit down and say, how about this one today? And then we start playing wow. on one song. I think it's on the first track, I Am My Mother. The drums don't even come in right away. And it's because Jeff just started when Glenn was just coming out of the bathroom. So <laughs> he didn't come in right away. And that one had the feel everyone loved. So that's the one. I think there's another song where the bass doesn't come in right away for the same reason. Jeff will just start. And sometimes the result of that is a more relaxed take. Maybe you never know. That's amazing. I was wondering if they were things that were sent out and y'all had heard them and you had practiced them in isolation, but no. Well, maybe one or two. We had heard most of the songs because at one point in the pandemic last year, Jeff just decided he wanted to write a song a day and send it to us. A lot of the songs ended up on Cruel Country, but I think he wrote 51 songs in 52 days. Wow. Brilliant songs, in my opinion. He always has plenty of songs, so that's how this album ended up so long. And as I say, there's other material in the wings. You said that once it got reduced to what it is now, the kind of message behind the project became clear. Was there some point in the recording of it where everybody started to get a sense of what that message was going to be? Yeah, I think so. I personally rely on Jeff to sort of keep us focused and make decisions about where it's all going to go and how it's going to end up. Right. But definitely by the second session, because we did two two-week sessions, by the second session, things were forming, and I think that we started getting pretty excited about focusing our efforts on this idea of a record called Cruel Country. You said you've got a bunch of these Jerry Jones guitars. I do. But not the sitar. No, because I have my little homemade yeah. Tysco Silvertone, and it sounds really good, and I don't play a whole lot of electric sitar, but... I just got enough action out of that little sitar. And in the meantime, wow, yeah, I have a lot of Jerry stuff. The first Jerry Jones instrument I bought was a baritone. And then I bought a 12-string. The first kind of commercially useful electric 12-string was invented by our man Vinnie Bell for Dan Electro. Oh, no kidding. Good heavens. This I did not know. Vinnie had stuff going on. He also had his underwater sound. Have you heard about that? No. He was in such demand in the studio because of this sound that he could get that nobody else could get. Turns out Nat Daniel over at Dan Electro and Vinny were buddies. And Vinny said, can you help me make this thing? So Nat invents this kind of variable reverb type thing. Imagine being able to sweep a reverb kind of automatically. Okay. Vinny takes like five or six of these and chains them together to get this weird, washy, what the hell is Normally, going on. Yeah. yeah, and then eventually has Nat make him something smaller and more portable. And he would take that to the studios for the sessions. People would be like, what is that box? He's like, I'm not telling you. <laughs> 
top secret. He thought, <laughs> as soon as anybody else has this, I'm out of work. Right. Uh, so he never told anybody what it was. Genius. <laughs> Where's that box? Yeah, right? He played it on, in fact, The Sound of Silence. Oh. Okay, I'm going to have to go back now and check that out. Yeah, same. That Vinny. Yeah. He knew it was up. Nice work. Interesting. Well, I wonder if I put this thing on and this thing on. <laughs> it's kind of like under there yeah and he would use that sound for everything he played it in the soundtrack to the godfather man old vinnie was on everything way to go john pulling out the deep cuts the deep vinnie cuts that's why people tune in john (laughs) i think people tune in because it's like watching the guy at the top of the building is he gonna jump This has got a pretty interesting shape to it. It's the same shape as the Dan Electro version. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's got a very comfortable cutout for your leg, so playing it seated is comfortable. But yeah, it's essentially the same shape. Then he made the little ones that look like little sitars, and you have to have the little metal thing for your leg to rest it. Right. He actually made an album of all this stuff. Old Vinny had an album called Pop Goes the Electric Sitar. Oh, and he played all the hits. If you want to hear Vinny on the electric sitar playing an instrumental version of Eleanor Rigby, knock yourself out. Yeah, there you go. That is a thing I do very much want to hear. (laughs) Do you have numbers for what this thing would cost? I think it was about $950 back in the day. I think all of Jerry's stuff was, and maybe it was a little more, but they're certainly going for more now. If that's the case in the 80s or 90s, then I'm guessing the original Coral of 1967, I don't know, like what, 300 bucks, maybe? In 67. Yeah. There was no vintage market in those days. No. Exactly. I really wanted a good electric guitar by the time I was 16. Before that, I had three Japanese guitars. My parents were both school teachers in the Los Angeles City school system and taught junior high school. And my dad bought a little Melody one pickup half size guitar for, I think, 30 some dollars. And then my pen bought at May Company Department Store, three pickups with tremolo arm. That was, I think, 60 some dollars. And then my Univox Les Paul custom copy was used and was $150. That was a complete piece of junk. (laughs) And then my father inherited some money from his cousin when she died. And I was able to get my first good electric guitar when I was maybe 17, maybe 16. I can't remember. And that was a guitar I still have, a 1971 Gibson ES-335. I couldn't get a used one. I would love to have gotten a used one, but I would have had to drive around going to pawn shops and music stores yep. and whatever and trying to find one. And I don't have, by the way, any of those, oh, I went into a pawn shop and there was a 1954 telly. Right. They only had it for 50 bucks. I don't have any stories like that. My motto is buy high, sell low. <laughs> <laughs> At what point did the tremolo become such an integral part of your music? Well, it's so weird because I have so many guitars that don't have it, like all my Jerry Jones guitars. Right. I don't want to be too long-winded and autobiographical. 
I'll condense <laughs> this. My first inspiration to play guitar was probably Jim McGuinn, later Roger McGuinn of the Birds, and then Jimi Hendrix. And Jimi Hendrix galvanized me to the extent that I decided when I first heard him that I was going to participate in music making for the rest of my life. I had no inkling that I could ever approximate anything that Jimmy was doing, and I had no desire to be in any way flamboyant player. And I was more focused on people who were coming out of blues, but had what I would consider to be a jazzy style. I mentioned Dwayne Allman before. He was incredibly important and probably one of the few people that I really did try to emulate, a non-tremolo arm guy. I've mentioned this man many times in interviews and they never add it to the interview. I feel like the interviewers are <laughs> protecting me somehow. But I have to tell you, in Humble Pie, Peter Frampton was incredibly important to me and I still think he's a great guitar player. Definitely. And then, of course, Dickie Betts. People don't talk about Dickie enough. And I know that he's, I guess, a little bit of trouble when you're around him, maybe. But he still played some great guitar. And a whole bunch of people like that were people that I wanted to emulate. And it wasn't until I was in a band called Block in Los Angeles in the mid-80s, I guess. And the whole idea of the band was two guys with strats just going nuts. I had to get a strat. So I did. I had a horrible 70s strat. And it had a Kaler tremolo on it. Does anyone remember Kaler? <laughs> yeah, oh for sure. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the guitar was the heaviest guitar. And it had Seymour Duncan pickups put in it and a bunch of switches. I got rid of that and got an American standard Strat through my friend who I already mentioned, G.E. Stinson, who had a deal with Fender at the time. Those were really good. I had to put Spurzel locking machines on and just tried to do everything Jeff Beck did to keep the guitar in tune. And that's when I guess I started to drift towards Jimi Hendrix's world as a player because the music was sort of asking for it. And it came somewhat naturally, I guess. <laughs> and then because of my love of television sure. and of Sonic Youth, I drifted into Jazz Master and Jaguar territory. And there was no turning back after that. And that's just what works for me generally in spite of the fact that I do have many guitars that I absolutely love playing, and I'm very enabled in Wilco to play multiple guitars just for the sound. I'm able to choose guitars for their personalities and their various qualities. Yeah. You mentioned going to the Strat and playing the two-Strat band. Was that before or after the Geraldine Fibbers? Oh, it's before. What were you playing in that band? Oh, in the Fibbers, I played the Jazzmaster that I still play with Wilco, the one oh. I bought from Mike Watt in 1995. And I uh, had a Jaguar, I think, as my spare. You know, when I first bought a Jaguar, it was I still have it. It's 1966, you know, with the block inlay, and it's very heavy. And yeah. It's probably not considered a great one, but I got a lot of really good use and tone out of that. I still have it right here. And I bought it for $325 out of the recycler, which was kind of like before Craigslist kind of newspaper that you would buy every week. Cars for sale, apartments for rent, that sort of thing. And I remember more than one person telling me, oh, you paid way too much for that guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Times change. Do you still have a variety of Jazzmasters and Jaguars? And how do you see them differently in terms of what you're trying to achieve? Well, I'm no expert. I will say that I seem to prefer the sound of the earlier Jazzmaster pickups and the slab board type of neck. I didn't know when I got that guitar from Mike Watt and was playing it with him and then with the Fibbers and now with Wilco that it was a particularly good sounding one to my ears. It's just a little deeper sonority. In terms of Jaguars, 
Jaguars are so wondrous to me because of how many tones you can get once you figure out how to use all those damn switches. Yeah. <laughs> Shorter scale, one more fret. So I don't find them to be in any way mutually exclusive. They really kind of go together. You can't do certain things on the Jaguar that you can do on the Jazzmaster and vice versa. But I have fake Jazzmasters that I think are really good guitars. And I put Duncan Antiquities in those and get my mastery bridge and my mastery tremolo and a decent slab of wood for the neck and the body and kind of good to go, in my opinion. I think the masteries are wonderful. Yeah. Woody, John Woodland, he's a really good friend. He credits me with helping him develop the mastery bridge, but I actually did absolutely nothing except say something like, hey, these are really great, Woody. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember doing anything else, but he's one of two or three people I know who has worked on more guitars and knows more about guitar and guitar history than anybody. And he loves jazz masters and he saw a problem and he solved it. The difference is pretty night and day. It's pretty crazy. I know some sticklers who insist that the original bridges can be used. On that 66, I've never put a mastery on it. I don't know why. For some reason, that guitar and that bridge seem to work, but everything else, it's mastery. I think early on, you thought you were going to be a Les Paul guy until maybe you played a Les Paul. Yeah, that's true. Well, it was 1971. I had my eye on a Les Paul custom at West LA Music, and I picked this thing up. It weighed 300 pounds, and the neck was so <laughs> chunky and unappealing. That's how I ended up with a 335 trying to decide because I was going to buy a new guitar and it had to be a Gibson because everybody I liked except Jimmy played Gibsons. Obviously, there are many other guitar players that I liked that didn't play Gibsons, but that's how it felt at the time. Yeah. Hey, uh, um, Share of the Wealth, the Nels Klein Singers album, it seems to me like the perfect synthesis of your more melodic leanings with the more kind of dense, cacophonous kind of stuff. It's an amazing album, I think. Well, thank you. I'm not somebody who really cares much about marketing, but it did come out at probably the worst possible time to put a record out, which was the week after the 2020 election. <laughs> yeah. All three of my Blue Note records, I didn't know I was making Blue Note records when I made them. I would just record them and then play them for Don Was, and he'd say, let's do this. So I lucked out. I'm three for three. But, but that record was an expanded version of The Singers, wherein I added Skerrick on tenor saxophone and his electronic world and also brian marcella on multiple keyboards and it was an experiment just two days of recording and i just wanted to see what we could do and then next thing i knew i had all this improvising that i actually liked and so i had a double album on my hands even though those improvised bits are time condensed i guess they're not reconfigured in terms of the flow. It's just I took a few little fallow moments out or did a few strategic mutes to make us sound way more visionary than we really are. <laughs> but yeah, it definitely addresses my jazz rock angle and also I guess a kind of folk music thing comes through here and there. I think the contrasts are great. You can hit these really dense moments, and at first it just kind of startles you, and then you settle into the kind of underlying beat that's happening. As soon as that happens and you hollow it out, the whole thing really breathes. It's very enjoyable. Wow, thank you. 
I think it's crucial to note that it is Mr. Amendola, who we've already name-checked, and Trevor Dunn bringing pretty deep grooves here and there, and also, of course, all the amazing, colorful, sonic world of Ciro Baptista on all his different percussion instruments. We totally maxed out that studio, the bunker in Brooklyn. Every square inch of that place was taken up with our world. It worked out really well. It worked out brilliantly, in fact. Anything else with this Jerry Jones, John? Did we cover this thing? Yeah, I think we covered it. Once Vinny was done making his mark with it, it kind of just continued. Redbone, come and get your love. Mm, Right, that's right. Tom Petty, don't come around here no more. Yep. Yes, close to the edge, it's on there. That's right, Steve Howe. I love Steve Howe. Yeah, it had its time. You gotta try it. Try and decide. Yes, you heard that right. Mm. That is the buy or deny (laughs) theme song. Whoa. We've told you about this Jerry Jones electric sitar. Mr. Nels Klein, would you buy this or deny it? Which is weird because you own one. I don't have a Jerry Jones. I am torn. Torn. Because I promised myself I would never, ever buy another guitar because I have too many guitars. But my natural instinct is buy. Buy. Mm. Ed? The vibe of these things, I love them. I've loved them for a very long time. They're just one of those weird niche things. I haven't looked up the price on this thing. I want to say for sure it's a buy. (laughs) I might be a little afraid of what they actually cost. I definitely am. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's low on my list of priorities, but I can't help but think in my case, with all the Jerry stuff that I have and love, it's the missing link. It sounds cool. Let's see if I can help you out here. I think Nels needs to buy this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he's cracking another beer? Yeah. That means the wallet is loosening up. (laughs) (laughs) I'm switching to a six points, the crisp. The crisp. Is it also an IPA? No, it's a Pilsner from Brooklyn. I think one of the greatest things about the small brewers is beer artwork. Mm. We went to a little pride festival this weekend and we're wandering around and my son was with me and we went into a little beer store and they just had hundreds of bottles. Mm -hmm. And I just found myself wandering the aisle looking at the art on all the beers. Isn't it a lot like effects pedals? I mean, there's 3 billion effects pedals companies now, let alone the pedals themselves. Yeah. All with silly names, just like all these craft beers have silly names. Yes. And they look really cool. I'm into it. I'm into the art side of the thing. Good stuff. What about you, John? What do you think of this thing? I think I would buy this. Oh, man. I don't think I can buy this. (laughs) I know I can't. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) One of my friends asked a question. Okay. Friend of the show, Tim Trundle, wants to know, any plans to put out another album with your wife? Cup. Tim Trundle is ready for another one. The answer is yes. It may not be all that soon because Yuka's very deep into her Yukademics, which is her solo music, and that's where things are going. But yes, we have plans for a couple of different Cup records. Perfect. 
John, I think we did a great job today. <laughs> I'm, as always, gratified to know you think we did well. Yeah. <laughs> but Nels, how do you think Ed did? <laughs> you guys have been fantastic. <laughs> Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. This has been quite enjoyable. Where should people go to find Nels Klein? Everything Nels. Tell the people where to go. I've got a heavy, heavy Wilco schedule because we're now going to do our shows in Scandinavia and Europe that we were supposed to do two years ago. I leave on Wednesday for that. And then I'll have a, a little bit of time in July, which may see me doing something here in upstate New York informally for friends, perhaps, like playing outdoors at a farm or something. Oh, nice. Because we have made some farmer friends. And then August, September, it's Wilco, Wilco. October, I'm doing rock and roll fantasy camp in New York City. And Seven Limbs, the Doug Cuomo piece that I play on with the string quartet, we're going to essay that in Brooklyn around that time. November, I'm trying to do some gigs with my quartet, the Concentric Quartet, and those would all be in the eastern United States. That quartet is with Tom Rainey on drums, Ingrid Laubrock on saxophones, and Chris Lightcap on acoustic bass. And then December, I'll be doing a little tiny run of these delightful house concerts and one at the Ardmore Music Hall outside of Philadelphia in duet with Chris Lightcap on acoustic bass. Those shows will also include Glenn Kochi of Wilco playing solo, Autumn Defense, which is Pat Sansone and John Stewart's longstanding band, sort of soft rock-ish, and Eucademics, Yuka doing some solo stuff. And we are playing mostly in people's houses in early December. Viewers, you should go check out all of that. And if I had my own personal recommendation, I would say if you want to bookend Nels's career, you could do worse than to listen to the Geraldine Fibbers from way back and the Share of the Wealth album from more recently. Wow. Thank you. Nels, we got to thank you so much for doing this. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you guys so much. Hey, John. Yeah. Where can people find us? People can find us, as usual, on the Instagram. Yep. And the Facebook. Okay. Our website is still thehighgain.com. Go there, check it out. Send us a mail about this or any other episode to thehighgainpod at gmail.com. Yeah, did you like this? Let us know. Leave a review, maybe somewhere. iTunes review? We like reviews. Yeah. Let's not forget to shout out our friends over there at Ruinous Media. Yes. Of course, we are on the Ruinous Media network of music podcasts. Yeah, we are. Ruinous Media has our back, and thanks to them, things like this can happen. Oh, my gosh. Yes. It's all coming together, John. Yeah, thanks, fellas. Bye. Okay, see ya.